Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden. Hey, everybody. This is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman back for the 115th Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call count of 115. Um, it is October 24th, uh, 2022, uh, in great countdown to the um, uh, midterm elections of 22. We have an incredible um, um, uh, Zoom call today, with starting with over 100 people, uh, with the representative uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, a representative from Maryland uh, and superstar of the January 6th committee. Uh, we are, we are, uh, we have, uh, shall we say, massive ambush waiting for him uh, with uh, a whole bunch of people uh, waiting to ask him questions, some of whom actually know him personally, including Joel Siegel. Uh, we've been joined by uh, Ray McClendon from the Atlanta, uh, the Georgia NAACP, and um, um, uh, uh, Dan Wolf, who knew him in Harvard. And uh, I don't see Ron, Ron Tannehill yet lately, but uh, we have Danny Sheehan and Tatanka Bricker from uh, the Romero Institute in California. Uh, and uh, Wendy Lederman, our own um, uh, staff person, is going to present him with a grassroots, um, a group of grassroots organizations in California that we look to for the future of politics in this country. Uh, Ron Leonard, um, Jim Garrison of Ubiquity Institute, and, and many others. In the second hour, um, we are going to go with Danny Zane, the former mayor of uh, Santa Monica, talk about a lot of important issues there. Uh, but in the interim, uh, we we do have a tremendous number of questions to raise with Jamie Raskin, um, uh, among them the future of American democracy. A small detail um, as to whether or not we actually can survive this uh, fascist onslaught from the uh, Trump uh, Republicans and um, the, uh, the infuriating unwillingness of the attorney general who may or may not exist to uh, indict Donald Trump and move us uh, to a position where he can actually protect democracy in this country. We also have Dennis Bernstein of the um, uh, uh, KPFA uh, uh, flagship show uh, Flashpoints, which is nationally syndicated. Um, Art Levine has just joined us, a, a great journalist. Uh, Tatanka Bricka uh, of uh, the uh, Romero Institute. Uh, Tatanka, did you want to jump on and give us a word real quick as we get started here? Yeah, I just wanted to, I had two questions. I would like to defer the first one to Danny Sheehan, who rep, who started the Romero Institute, and I can handle the energy question. Okay, that's fine. Danny Sheehan is going to be asking him about uh, the, you know, fascism and fending it off in, in a country where uh, we've enjoyed a republic, as Ben Franklin said, as he walked out of the Constitutional Convention in 1789. Um, uh, we was asked what kind of government uh, we were going to get. He said a republic if you can keep it, and it's looking pretty dicey. Uh, some 200 and, uh, what is it now, uh, almost 20 years later. So uh, yes, oh, it's more than that. It's more than 220 years later. And uh, we, we are really at the brink, as many of us know, of a fascist takeover in this country. One of the things we're gonna discuss also, <clears throat> what are the implications for Ukraine of a Republican takeover, one or both, a, Houses of the Congress, God forbid, uh, the pull, plug is pulled on the Ukraine resistance and 
uh, and the democracy movement in that country, will Vladimir Putin become the dictator uh, of Europe? Uh, will he have it under his thumb the uh, Zaporizhia and Chernobyl nuclear power plants? And uh, God help us all if that happens. So these are some of the things that are online for us uh, as we await the arrival of uh, Congressman uh, uh, Jamie Raskin, a representative of Maryland. As I say, in the second hour, we're going to uh, discuss with Denny Zane a wide range of issues um, uh, 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 having to do with democracy and more. Joel Siegel, you are going to be the lead off of, uh, uh, on this. What can you tell us about your old friend, Jamie Raskin? Hold on, we're going to unmute you. Uh, you are speaking. There you go. Okay, bro. Uh, hey, everybody. Um, so I met Jamie when I was 31 years old in uh, Washington, D.C. I worked for his father, Marcus Raskin, at the Institute of Policy Studies. And um, we just immediately you know, had a camaraderie. He was, he was my best friend for that the few years that I was in D.C. as a younger man. He was working for Jesse Jackson as his chief counsel. And uh, he was just really cool and down to earth, very funny. I definitely knew he was going to do great things. Um, you know, he's a constitutional law professor, an American, and uh, he was a great, he was, Mike, was he the majority leader in the Maryland legislature? Jamie was the um, Senate majority whip in, in Maryland. Yeah. Um, he's just, he's a, you know, progressive all the way through. Um, and he's just a very, if you see him on the weekend, he used to wear a, a baseball hat backwards, you know, like, a, <laughs> like a hip hop dude, <laughs> and, uh, family guy. Um, he, he's just all about the people. He, he's, a, he's a true believer, you know, in justice. It's just a great. Just a so great the, 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 and, and you know, he seems like a very uh, intelligent guy, of course, had a personal tragedy hit. We won't discuss the details just before. Yeah, his son, right. His son died. Yeah, his, and, son, his son passed away. And by the way, yeah. uh, on our invite, we have had that David Hogg was the David Hogg is the 20 something um, um, political leader who's emerged uh, from the Parkland shooting in Florida to be uh, quite a powerful organizer. He's currently at Harvard and he's going to be joined by John Rosenthal, a major developer and solar and other activist democracy activist in, in Boston uh, next week. Uh, they were billed for this week. So the question now becomes, and we can discuss this uh, as we await uh, Congressman uh, Raskin, what do we want from the January 6th committee at this point in time? Uh, they have done, a spect by all accounts, a spectacular job of laying out the case uh, against Donald Trump and making it clear that the January 6th um, uh, uh, catastrophe was a, a clear and present attempt to overthrow the government um, led by Donald Trump to the extent that Donald Trump has led anything. Uh, what, would, what do we want to have Jamie Raskin do along with the uh, committee, uh, the January 6th committee going forward to protect our democracy? Joel, do you want to start with that? <clears throat> what, that would be the first question you want me to ask him? Well, yes, but let, let's start to answer it. Joel Siegel, a former um, uh, chief counsel or, or, or a chief staff, a person with uh, as Congressman um, uh, uh, John Conyers of Detroit, what what would John Conyers do if he was leading the, the January 6th committee right now? 
Oh, I, I can tell you what he would do. <laughs> he would, he would, um, he would call for criminal charges. Uh, he he would want to have um, criminal charges against Trump, and because he was always trying to impeach George W. Bush, and uh, Conyers would be hardcore about him being indicted and going to jail. Well, uh, and uh, what do you think? How would the nation respond if they if today's um, uh, uh, January sixth committee issued a demand that um, Donald Trump be indicted? And uh, they actually discovered uh, the presence of Merrick Garland somewhere in Washington, and he issued an indictment. How how would the country react? I think I think if it was explained to the country, they'd have to show the laws that he broke. You have to explain we're a nation of laws. Here are the laws that he broke. Would there be you know an outpouring of um, maybe some violent demonstrators. I think so, but that's the way it goes sometimes. I think the majority of people who believe in a rule of law would support it if they knew they definitely had committed treason. And I think the Achilles heel of Donald Trump is for two and a half hours, he did nothing. just arrived. What's that? He didn't do anything for two and a half hours. Okay, Amy is on the call. Oh. All right, uh, uh, Joel, you got that right. Um, uh, uh, Jamie Raskin, uh, do you want to show your face here? We're glad to have you with us. Your old buddy, Joel Siegel, has been regaling us with uh, tales of your various exploits. <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, Jamie, you're on mute. mute. <laughs> we want to unmute. Uh, uh, and uh, Jamie, you have, are you with us? Can you hear me? Yes, pleasure to be with you. Uh, great to be with you. You have immediately won the contest for the best dressed person to ever appear uh, on this Zoom call. Uh, you're joined by 120 people. It's really glad to have you on this. We'll be right, re, this is being live cast on um, uh, uh, YouTube and will be rebroadcast on the Progressive Radio Network Thursday night. So we are thrilled to have you with us. You can see I've worn the appropriate No Nukes t-shirt. And um, uh, we do have, very quickly, we're going to go to Joel Siegel to, and we have great people lined up to ask you questions and to hear from you. Uh, before you do your intro, we have two very quick 60 second, 60 second things to put on your long-term agenda. Do you mind? I could resist slipping them in. You will not believe what this is. Number one, there is a statue at the corner of uh, Florida and Connecticut. Uh, right up the street from your father's old Institute for Policy Studies. This is a statue, Steve, if you can show it, of General George McClellan. There's absolutely no reason on earth, and I'm a historian, I'll send you my book, The People's Spiral of U.S. History. Uh, there is absolutely no reason to have a statue of George McClellan in the United States of America. As you know, he was the first commander of the Army of the Potomac, and then ran against Lincoln in 1864, advocating that we keep slavery. So I believe that you uh, could get a non a, a, a bipartisan commission, okay, Steve, to remove this statue. And uh, we want to uh, replace it with the appropriate person. We want to put a statue there of your father <laughs> who, ran, <laughs> who ran, ran IPS right down the street. We all knew and loved and, uh, but failing that, we want it removed. You could line up with all the Republicans, 
send it out to Chicago where McClellan was from and, and good riddance to him, okay? The second uh, quickie is, has to do with Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings was the, as you know, the slave of um, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. We have on the line, if you will unmute her mic, Avalia Jones. Avalia Jones is a direct descendant of Tom Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And she and I co-authored a piece in the LA Times, the first major piece, demanding that Sally Hemings be officially recognized as the third first lady of the United States. If you read the uh, various lists of presidents of the United States and their first ladies, they always list Thomas Jefferson's first lady as Martha Wales Jefferson, who he ma married in 1772 and she died in 1782. Soon after that, Tom Jefferson took up with Sally Hemings. She was 17 and he was in his 40s, but nonetheless, they wound up having four children and they were together for 40 years. And we think, and Avelia, if, if you can, un, if you can unmute and- I don't and see her. Up. So Avelia, if you're out there, raise your hand, please. Otherwise yeah. we're gonna have to move uh, on. And we want a resolution from the Congress officially recognizing Sally Hemings as the third first lady of the United States. Now I know these sound like small items given what we're facing, but you're gonna be around for a long, long time. And these are, she has already presented this by the way, um, Avelia to Maxine Waters uh, in LA. And uh, we just like to put, put it on your deep agenda, those two items. When you get the statue of McClellan removed uh, and put in your father, we will be with you uh, to celebrate <laughs> <laughs> and maybe maybe that maybe you could have him standing next to Sally Hemings. It would be a wonderful thing. Okay. Slug, Sluggo, for anybody who's been living under a rock for quite a while, I'd like to give a real quick uh, introduction of my good friend, Jamie. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is Mike Hirsch. Mike is a step. Uh, this is the 115th call. Congressman Raskin, we have 124 people on, on the line. Mike, Ra Mike Hirsch. Has been our co-engineer all the all from right from the start with Progressive Democrats of America, and we would like have him to have the honor of introducing you. Thank you, Sluggo. Um, I've known Jamie for longer than I can even remember. We go back quite a ways. Um, Jamie was with PDA before there was a PDA, um, with a bunch of alumni from the uh, various J Jesse Jackson organizations. Uh, Tim Carpenter, Stephen Cobble, some other people, Jamie got together um, and helped launch PDA. So thank you so much for that, Jamie. And uh, then PDA turned around and was the first national organization that urged and supported Jamie to run for state Senate in Maryland, where he was an exemplary state senator, a leader on so many important issues, too many really to list, but I'll mention um, allowing former felons who did their time to vote in Maryland. He was the floor leader on that and got that very contentious issue through. Um, he was a leader on marriage equality and so many other great things. And then um, Maryland's loss became the United States gain as he moved up to the US Congress. Again, PDA supported him from the very beginning because we knew that he would continue being a great leader on every issue that was important to us. Uh, with Jamie, it's never asking him to do what we need him to do. It's him actually pushing us 
a lot of times, and he's always there uh, shoulder to shoulder, leading the way on progressive issues. And, um, and then as Jamie became nationally and internationally known as the chief prosecutor against the MAGA cult and the former president um, and holding him accountable, showing incredible intelligence, courage, and uh, just the, 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 the wonderful leadership that we've known um, him to present all these years. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Jamie. Thank you so much for leading on every important issue. And thank you so much for just being who you are. And we really appreciate you taking time to be with us today. And thank you, Mike, for that. So Jamie, um, a, a Congressman, we're gonna give you all the time you want to make an opening statement. And then your buddy, uh, uh, Ron, uh, uh, Joel Siegel is gonna uh, segue in uh, when you're ready for him. So uh, the stage is yours. Thank awesome. You awesome. Harvey, thank you very much. I look forward to reading through all that stuff. Obviously I'll have to recuse myself for a conflict of interest if you're trying to create a statue for my dad, but I've been uh, very supportive, obviously, and uh, leading on dismantling uh, statues and busts of Confederate uh, war heroes and soldiers, including those who used to be on the Union side who went over uh, to the Confederacy. And why should we have statues to traitors uh, to the country? That makes no sense. And so anyway, I'm interested in looking at all that stuff and the Sally Hemings question. I'd be very curious uh, to read what you guys uh, have on that and you know whether she should be considered retroactively a first lady and so on. And yeah, that's interesting to me. But Mike, hey, thank you for uh, that uh, th that wonderful introduction. And it's uh, been a point of great honor and pride for me to be uh, an ally and um, a strong friend. And I think a member, I can't remember last time I paid dues, but I think I was a member of PDA back in the day anyway. Um, but um, thank you for all for uh, hanging tough for strong democracy in America. Um, basically, right now, we've got a race between the will of the majority in the country, which is overwhelmingly uh, on our side. Um, remember, Hillary beat him by 3 million votes, Joe Biden beat him by 7.5 million votes, all of the young people in the country are moving in our direction. I think are registering Democrat over Republican two to one in the country. Um, and they are uh, a minority and a shrinking minority. And uh, Lincoln's party, which was an anti-slavery party, an anti-racist party, as far as you could go in the 19th century, a pro-immigrant party, which uh, hated the know-nothings and attacked the know-nothings. That party is gone, has been reduced to a cult of authoritarian personality around Donald Trump. And, you know, the political scientists tell us that the hallmarks of a fascist or authoritarian political party are a cult of personality organized around uh, a charismatic or allegedly charismatic leader who dictates to everybody what to think and what to do, uh, a refusal to accept the results of democratic elections if they don't go their way, and then an embrace of political violence or refusal to disavow it as an instrument for achieving political power. So they all got pissed off at Joe Biden for going to Philadelphia a few weeks ago and saying that the MAGA party has semi-fascist elements in it. But if 
the shoe semi fits, you semi wear it. And I mean, that is precisely what they've become an authoritarian political cult. Okay, so there's not a lot of traction there. So how do they stay alive? And how do they continue to be competitive with us? Well, one, what you're seeing around the country today, which is just an onslaught of right-wing political propaganda and TV ads against our candidates paid for with um, hundreds of millions of dollars in right-wing corporate dark money. Um, and then the voter suppression statutes, the elimination of weekend voting and early voting, the attack on mail-in balloting, the new rules in Georgia, which say that, you know, the, the these new vote watchers that they send in can challenge anybody's vote for any reason at all, causing tremendous frustration um, and humiliation at the polls by people who for no reason at all are being challenged today. Um, so they've got the voter suppression uh, statutes and tactics. They've got the gerrymandering of our federal and state legislative districts on a decade by decade basis. So every 10 years, they draw the minority into power in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Georgia and Florida. Um, and the manipulation of the filibuster, which is not in the Constitution, which is not in federal law, it's just a rule of the Senate. And if we can get two more real Democratic senators elected who act like Democratic senators, then we will be able to carve out another exception to the filibuster. It's already got more than 100 exceptions like the Trade Adjustment Act, the Budget Reconciliation Act, judicial confirmations. We just need another exception for voting rights and democracy legislation. Like we need an exception to codify Roe versus Wade and an exception for gun safety legislation so we can pass the universal violent criminal background check. Um, so um, they thrive on those anti-democratic institutions and practices including the Electoral College, which of course is in the Constitution and has given us five popular vote losers as president of the United States twice in this century alone in 2000 and 2016, which marginalizes the vast majority of the American people in the general election process. Since most of us live in safe blue states or safe red states and all of the money and all the attention and organizing goes to six or seven states, you know what they are, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida and North Carolina. There's not many of them, but that's where they go. Um, and, you know, I mean, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year exporting American democracy to other countries and going to teach people about democracy. And the one thing they never come back to us with is, yeah, something we really like to import from your country is that electoral college system you've got. We think you really got a great thing going there. I mean. It's time for us to elect the president the way we elect everybody else in America, governors, senators, mayors, representatives, whoever gets the most votes wins. You don't need a principle any more radical than that. That's just democracy itself. And yet, so we're up against this terrible struggle between the clear will of the majority to defend democracy and the constitution and freedom against you know, this bag of tricks that this cult is carrying around with them. And that's a struggle, Orion. And I like Biden's speech, except one thing, he made it sound like democracy is this static thing. It's just like an existing set of election practices. No, that's not it. That's 
part of it, but democracy is always in motion. It's always growing. Tocqueville saw that in Democracy in America. He said that he observed that in America, democracy is either shrinking and shriveling away or it's growing and expanding. And we got to get back on the growth track. The vast majority of the constitutional amendments that have been added since the original Bill of Rights of the 17 amendments we've added have been democratizing amendments that have expanded the franchise in America, abolished the slavery in America, mandated equal protection in America. You know, said in the 15th Amendment, no race discrimination in voting. 17th Amendment, the people get to elect U.S. senators, not the legislatures. The 19th Amendment doubled the franchise with women's suffrage. 23rd Amendment gave people in D.C. the right to participate in presidential elections. 24th Amendment banning poll taxes. 26th Amendment lowering the voting age. That's the real trajectory of our development through profound social and political struggle in the country. And we got to get back on that track. We got 713,000 taxpaying, draftable U.S. citizens in Washington, D.C. who are the only residents of the national capital on planet Earth who are not represented in their own legislature. It's time for DC statehood in America. And it's time for statehood for three and a half million Americans locked out of Congress and out of the political system in Puerto Rico. That alone would create a sea change in American politics if we admitted two new states, Washington and Puerto Rico. But we need a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right to vote. We need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to repair the damage wrought by the Trumpified Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder. We need to abolish gerrymandering, all of it. We need to keep democracy in motion. I'm with John Dewey, who said the only solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy, because what we're suffering from today is not democracy, but all of these impediments and uh, obstacles and choke points against it. And that, that's the struggle that we're in, and that's what we got to get back on. So I'm happy to answer anybody's questions. But one thing is I'll save everybody the trouble of asking me what's the message, because everywhere I go, they say, well, the Democrats have delivered on a lot of stuff, the Infrastructure Act, Inflation Reduction Act, limiting health care costs, limiting insulin costs to $35 a month for diabetics in the Medicare program, limiting $2,000 uh, limiting $2,000 payments for prescription drugs uh, in the Medicare program. But people say, but what's the message? How are you guys messaging? So <laughs> one humble suggestion from Maryland that you can take to your children and your grandchildren and spread it out there. Everything that you need to know about voting is everything that you need to know about driving. If you want to go forwards, you put it in D. You want to go backwards, you put it in R. That's all you need to know about voting in 2022 if you need to simplify it for people. So the floor is open and I'm happy to turn it over to you guys. Well, I never knew that putting my car in reverse would lead me to a fascist state, but I think that's what we're finding out. Um, uh, uh, Joel Siegel, we're going to go to you. You guys are old buddies. And then to Ray McClendon. You may not have met Ray McClendon, Jeremy, uh, uh, Jamie, but uh, the one of the themes of our principal themes of our uh, calls has been to go to grassroots organizing. And, 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 um, and Ray is the, uh, the, the director of the state NAACP in Georgia. So I'm gonna give it to Joel. He and Ray have been working together and he'll bring in Ray for you. If you can give us uh, also uh, to me uh, so at solartopia Gmail, the contact of the person we should be working with 
in your office, that would be great for the help. We'd be grateful for that. Uh, Joel Siegel, go ahead with that, with Jamie Raskin, please. Jamie, hi, good to see you. Hey, Joel. Good to see you, man. Um, I've known you now for 31 years, um, but um, Congressman John Conyers and your dad would be so proud of you for helping to save democracy in America. Um, and you do look great, by the way. Um, so uh, just a few questions. Uh, by the way, I'm working for the National Coalition for the Homeless. I am back in DC, just to let you know. Um, oh, great, that's awesome. Yeah, sure. So um, the first question would be, as, as a constitutional scholar and former professor, if the 1-6 commission articulates the need for Donald Trump to be indicted based on the evidence, what, in your opinion, would be the laws that he abrogated that would warrant a federal prosecution? Would it be the fact that for two and a half hours there was an insurrection and he did nothing but watch television gleefully? Would it be he should have known uh, by using you know, speech that might be prohibited by the First Amendment that he knowingly was going to incite a crowd by saying, you got to be strong? Um, what, in your opinion, would be the legal theory where he would be indicted? The central uh, federal criminal statute that's been violated by him and all of the other organizers and accomplices to the crime was a conspiracy to interfere with a federal proceeding. Mm -hmm. um, and that federal proceeding is the joint session of Congress called for under the 12th Amendment to the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act. I mean, I just think they got him dead to rights on that. I mean, that was the whole point of Stop the Steal. That was the whole point of calling tens of thousands of people uh, to the uh, ellipse and telling them they got to fight like hell. And if they don't fight like hell, they're not going to have a country anymore. And when there's fraud involved, it's a very different set of rules and pointing them like a loaded gun at the Capitol and sending them down there, knowing that people were armed, as Cassidy Hutchinson testified, saying, no, put, bring down the magnetometers, bring down the metal detectors, let them all in. Mm -hmm. um, and he, his team had been uh, recruiting, proselytizing and mobilizing the Oath Boys and the, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the militia groups, the QAnon networks. They knew exactly who was in that crowd. And that band of insurrectionists uh, were the frontline vanguard stormtroopers who smashed our windows, broke our doors and beat the hell out of our officers with their Trump flags and Confederate battle flags and American flags sharpened into weapons. Um, so they knew exactly what they were doing. Now, there are lots of uh, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers who are being charged with, and many have been convicted already, of seditious conspiracy, which means not just conspiracy to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power, the federal proceeding, but conspiracy to overthrow the US government and put down the US government. So obviously that will be the prosecutor's call, whether they think they have enough evidence to show that uh, against Trump right now. And we don't know all of the evidence that we have. I think there's a very powerful circumstantial case to be made about that. And of course, criminal prosecutions are proven all the time with circumstantial evidence. Um, but uh, Trump is uh, coy and like all good mob bosses knows how to insulate himself by several layers of lieutenants between himself 
and the criminal conduct that he's organizing and ordering. So would Merrick Garland, the attorney general, be the, the uh, federal official to prosecute Trump? Well, yeah, I think the, the Department of Justice would be uh, in a position to prosecute any federal crimes that they see. And uh, yeah, again, that's not an exhaustive list in any way. I mean, there are lots of campaign finance uh, crimes that were deliberately undertaken. Um, and, um, you know, there are really countless crimes. I mean, there have been more than 950 prosecutions already. Um, and uh, many of the people prosecuted and convicted were saying, if I'm guilty, Donald Trump is guilty. He ordered me to do this. He gave me license to do it. He aided and abetted. He was my accomplice and so on. But clearly the Department of Justice, obviously Trump's got legal problems that uh, extend further than January the 6th. I mean, Thank you. you know, you've got bank fraud, real estate fraud, insurance fraud in New York. You've got election fraud in Georgia, where he told Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, just find me 11,780 votes. That's all I want. I mean, I'm a politician. That's all I want. Give me 11,780 votes. I mean, that was Donald Trump caught red handed, not trying to stop election fraud, trying to commit election fraud <laughs> very clearly. And, you know, had Raffensperger gone along with it, somebody would have showed up with 11,780 votes, one more than needed. He would have won Georgia by one vote. They would have said, wait a second, where are those votes coming from? Oh, we just found them. How many are for Trump? 11,780. How many are for Biden? Zero. <clears throat> oh, wow. It must have been a, a great uh, precinct or city for Donald Trump. He got 100% of the votes. Great. Thank you, Jamie. Um, one quick question, and then we're going to go to um, Ray McClendon, who's probably one of the most important grassroots community organizers. He's the political director for Atlanta NAACP, who was really, in my opinion, an architect of getting two progressive senators elected uh, last time in Georgia. But quick question, is there a possibility that the Judiciary Committee could draft legislation um, that would begin to limit the powers of racist groups, Nazis, the Boogaloos, um, any, any group that's preaching hatred, racism, and, and hit with a history of violence so that they literally would be shut down. And that would include their websites. This would mean there'd have to be more funding for FBI to investigate. But if we have tyranny of the minority who are now um, threatening local elected officials, you know, demin the president of Dominion, what, why should they be allowed to continue to, you know, threaten election officials in Georgia? Would we allow, you know, for example, um, uh, any other group uh, that would do that? Um, you know, sh sh aren't there some limitations we have to put on these groups before it's too late? Yeah, well, you know, there are 50 states that ban so-called private militias. Um, the Constitution is very clear that uh, militias exist only under uh, the supervision of the state and federal governments. Uh, and the, the state governments appoint the officers, and then they can be regulated and armed and organized by Congress. Congress shall have power to call forth the militias in order to enforce the laws of the United States in order to suppress insurrections and in order to repel invasion. So 
private on uh, private armed militias can be banned. All 50 states have banned them either in their state constitutions or state laws. They should be banned at the federal level too. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of the other stuff you're talking about, obviously, if an extremist group engages in violent crime against individuals uh, or against churches or synagogues or mosques or whatever it might be, um, they can be sued. They can be prosecuted, but they can also be sued civilly for the cost. And some of them can and have been bankrupted by that, which is probably the best way to go to put them uh, to put them out of business. Um, and that, you know, that works against a lot of the conspiracy theorists and liars these days, as we saw with uh, the Newtown verdict against the pathological uh, radio talk show host who just lied consistently about what happened in Newtown, Connecticut, and is now facing a billion dollar verdict whose name I will not utter in public. <laughs> he, he who has no name. We, we refer to him as Voldemort, uh, by the way. Uh, so uh, uh, Joel, uh, uh, we, we are joined by Ray McClendon. Thank you for those great questions, Joel. Ray McClendon is the a political director of the Georgia NAACP and co-author of a new book on, um, on the Georgia miracle. And as I say, one of the major themes that we've been dealing with uh, on these calls is uh, converting the Democratic Party to grassroots organizing. If there's anybody we'd want to talk to about it, it's it's you, Representative Raskin. So Jamie, go ahead, please. And uh, um, Ray, Ray, go ahead. Hello, <laughs> hello, Congressman. It's an honor to meet you, and and thanks for all of the hard work you're doing on the J6 committee. And uh, we're we're watching it. In fact, we're planning to have a uh, press conference in Atlanta this weekend to talk about uh, J6 and the threat to democracy and why it's so important to vote in the uh, in the election, which, as uh, you probably know, early voting has already started here in Georgia uh, from last Monday. Uh, just real quick, the over the first week, we have been able to um, see early voting at historic levels for uh, a midterm election. Uh, we're up to almost 750,000 uh, early votes in Georgia, which is almost uh, as high as the early voting was in, in the presidential election. Uh, we had dramatically more mail-in votes, <clears throat> of course, at that time, uh, and, and those are falling behind. But the, the, but the critical thing here is, is that uh, we are overperforming in the uh, Black community, uh, as a percentage of the total registered black voters in the state. And that has led to uh, estimates that the uh, Dems in the, uh, so far in the early voting uh, looks to be somewhere close to a 60-40 margin. Uh, so when you talk about some of the things with voter suppression and, and other things that have targeted Georgia like SB 202, uh, it's been grassroots organizations that have come together, like the NAACP, many of the Divine Nine organizations across the state of Georgia, the Masons and others, who have had a concerted effort starting in 2020 to get out uh, the vote and made a difference in those two Senate runoffs. And we've continued that, that effort uh, to overcome those barriers that have led to the great results so far that we want to keep up. 
The challenge we've, we, we seem to have though is uh, to galvanize the funding community to understand how important it is uh, to be outside of your traditional Democratic Party network with trusted messengers from the civic engagement communities with folks who live and work in these communities and are connected with people. And that's what we've been able to do. So I would just be interested in your, uh, your assessment of how civic engagement groups <clears throat> like the ones that coalition that we've built here in Georgia can get more support directly on the ground uh, to turn out uh, the, the vote uh, because we're talking to these people every day. We're in the barbershops, we're in the beauty parlors, we're on the street with these folks and we can get those basic messages across, like you said, <laughs> D versus R and, and put it in drive or put it in reverse. And a lot of people can have those conversations if we have the support to push out the resources into the community. Well, Ray, thank you. What an honor it is to meet you. And thank you for the extraordinary work you're doing in Georgia and that great news about at least the early indications of where the vote's coming from and who's outperforming. So thank you for, for making that happen. Um, you know, um, the, it's, it makes me even a little bit nervous to, to, try to, uh, to try to answer your question because, you know, the, the laws are so, you know, rigidly enforced as to campaign money, uh, which goes towards partisan campaigning versus the 501c3 money where, where we can't get involved in that and we can't compromise anybody's 501c3 status and they can't do that versus the C4 money and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, but I will just tell you generally um, that uh, I trust uh, and I hope that everybody who's trying to defend democracy, either from a partisan perspective like me or from a not-for-profit perspective, small d democracy uh, in the land, understands nothing is more central at this point than what you guys are doing in terms of defending the right to vote at the local level and mobilizing people to use the right to vote. Um, in order to make sure that we get political leadership that is reflective of the political will of the people. I mean, that's what it's all about. Um, so, um, you know, beyond that, I'm just nervous about opining, but I'm happy to talk to you separately or yes. offline about any particular case where you think I can help people see the light. I mean, you know, and, and I do hope that we're gonna be much more engaged in doing civic education and civic activism continuously, not just during you know the three months before an election or what have you. I mean, we've got to be educating people generally for constitutional knowledge. I mean, so much of our crisis in America today is a crisis of constitutional illiteracy. And you've got you know, right-wingers out there saying, the purpose of the Second Amendment is to allow the people to overthrow the government. Really, to take up arms against the government, you think the Second Amendment gives people that right. I mean, it's just so outrageous. People out there saying the Constitution makes America a Christian nation. Really, what part of the Constitution does that? The Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the clause which says there shall be no religious test for public office, but it's that kind of constitutional illiteracy and ignorance 
which has allowed us to get into this terrible situation we're in with the Trump people. Well, I, yeah. I applaud that. And just, just a quick follow-up as an example, one of our coalition partners, uh, who you may know as the Center for Common Ground, and they've created something called Democracy Centers, uh, which they are establishing in several uh, cities in Georgia and indeed across the south, across the southeast. And it's dealing with that exact question uh, point that you just made, Congressman, where we're really getting involved in in teaching civics since it's not taught in high schools anymore, and letting people understand how uh, they can be active in their local communities and make a difference at the city council level, at the school board level, and as you well know, that's where the uh, the conservatives are playing an even greater role today, and and we don't see. Uh, a, a wall being set up on the other side to counterbalance that. Yes. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that we're trying to create to your point of being involved in this year round. It's great when we go into barbershops, one of the things that the young brothers say to us is, yeah, it's great that you're here now uh, because you want us to vote, but who's around during the rest of the year? And I think one of the things that we've got to do is to create a sustained effort. And that's what we're trying to do here. That's in right. And, and just one postscript on it is to combine what you're talking about, which is the continuing education with service to people. I mean, I, you know, I've been traveling around the country. There are places that will do like minor auto repairs for people like on their brake lights and stuff. So they don't get stopped by the police as a pretext for harassment. And there are, you know, people that are making diapers available and meals available to people who need help. So we got to change the whole concept of what we're doing in terms of defending democracy and reaching people where their needs are. Absolutely. This is a great moment for us to have you connected with Ray. We, we, we hope you can also uh, set up a time in your office for Ray and Andrea Miller, who is the, at the Center for Common Ground. They have truly mastered the art and science of grassroots organizing. And our theme for the last 20, 125 gatherings has been to somehow get the progressive movement locked into a grassroots organizing strategy that can get around the Democratic Party's marriage to uh, high expenditure media uh, campaigning. We believe generally that the progressive movement could win easily uh, an election like the upcoming midterm if the big money was going into grassroots organizing and not into major media buys. So if, if you can find time and people in your office to meet with Ray and Andrea, uh, it would be a dream come true for us. Thank you so much for that conversation. Of course. I'm gonna go uh, very quickly now to Bryn Tannehill and then Dennis Bernstein. Uh, Bryn is a very well-known author on the rise of fascism. And, um, and then Dennis Bernstein is a nationally syndicated radio host uh, of the Flashpoint show out of KPFA in Berkeley. Uh, go ahead, Bryn, please, and then Dennis. Hi, thank you very much, um, Congressman Raskin, for Denny. taking the time with us today. Hold on um, just a second. My name's Bryn Tannehill. I write for the New Republic. Can uh, you hear author. me? Can you hear me? Somebody needs to mute. Go ahead. Uh, Tatanka, you've got to be muted. Tatanka, please mute. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I'm author of American Fascism, uh, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. I'll get you a copy if you like. Please, I would uh, love it. Okay, uh, I'll send somebody on your staff an electronic copy of the galley proofs, if that's okay. Please. Okay, um, so one of the things that we've seen with, with fascist movements is that they need a scapegoat. 
and the scapegoat that has been latched onto by fascist movements uh, across the West at this point is transgender individuals. We see Putin blaming gender ideology for why he invaded Ukraine and reaching out. Uh, you see Hungary uh, claiming that that's why they're pursuing their liberal policies to destroy democracy. We see uh, increasingly hyperbolic and even genocidal language being used by Congress members uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and even Marsha Blackburn uh, at a rally yesterday in Tennessee. Um, and the defenses offered up by Democrats uh, a lot of times seem very weak because trans people are a minority that uh, has less acceptance than a lot of other minorities, that there is still a great degree of discomfort about transgender people. But if our democracy continues to erode, if the guardrails continue to fail, the people that are going to bear the worst brunt of the fall of American democracy are going to be trans people. It's going to hit us hardest and it's going to hit us first. Um, and we could see things happen that would be unthinkable. Uh, and I'd like to know what you and other Democrats uh, are doing and planning on doing to protect this community from what seems to be coming. Uh, and it's extremely scary. Uh, at this point, me and my family, if things continue the path we're on, we're, we're leaving. We're, my wife's Canadian and we're gone. You're leaving the country? US, leaving the US. It's, I don't believe if we continue on the path we're on, it's not gonna be safe in four or five years. So, um, well, look, thank you for raising that profoundly important point and uh, with you know, that alarming conclusion to your uh, insights into what's going on. Uh, I've of course observed this and uh, challenged it and clashed with the Republicans about this. Um, one of my proudest moments in my political career, such as it is, was in Maryland, where I was the floor leader and the introducer of our transgender civil rights bill, which we passed right after marriage equality. I think it was in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, it just, it seems like it's such a basic thing. And it looked like almost people were just going to accept it. But you're right now, um, they've decided that, well, it's too politically hot for them to attack uh, gay and lesbian people the way they used to do it. It's a little complex with, you know, people like Liz Cheney's sister, although some of them still do that too, but the, the real scapegoats are transgender people. Um, and so uh, we have to be, you know, adamant and fierce in defending um, transgender people against these attacks and against the violence uh, and we know that there's been the violence that's been permitted uh, through under enforcement of regular criminal laws, you know, where you have police who don't take seriously crimes against transgender people or prosecutors who don't take it seriously. And, you know, the, the Republican demonization and stigmatization of the transgender um, would appear to give social license to that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we've got to make sure that uh, the police forces that are doing the right thing are praised and supported. 
Uh, I am not a uh, defund the police person. The police saved my life and saved my daughter's life and my son-in-law's life on January 6th. Mostly black and Hispanic cops, by the way, who saved the lives of our family. So you got racist police forces or sheriff's departments that are infected by racism or homophobia, then they need to be cleaned out. But with cops, we're talking about public servants like firefighters and teachers and people who are working for us. So we got to make sure they're doing the right thing. I know in a lot of the big cities, they are in New York City and Washington, D.C. and Boston. You've got pro-LGBTQ policies. Um, and you know, I, I hope that they're being properly uh, implemented and that I hope would allay some of your concerns, Brent, about staying in the country, um, you know, that you can live in a place where the law enforcement is taking seriously the idea that you've got civil rights that can't it, be violated. It's, it's more along the lines of uh, if things continue along the way they are, and I've mapped this out, and I work for a well-known think tank that I can't mention in this forum because uh, I'm not authorized to. But essentially, we could see the end of access to health care for trans people with uh, with the FDA being undermined and packed with ideologues, right? So the only way I'm going to be able to get my HRT is if I either transit to Tijuana or live in Canada, right? Or somehow get a sketchy pharmacy overseas to send me stuff. I mean, these are the kinds of, uh, we could see revoking of security clearances. We could see... Um, uh, we could see a government requirement that the only gender marker on our ID has to match what was on our original birth certificate. There's all kinds of things that are on the table that a that the next administration could do to make our lives essentially impossible. And that's the kinds of things that has me extremely worried. Well, thank you. And that, I can send very, you some Very that. powerful, Bryn. Thank you. And Bryn is a noted author, Damien, uh, a, a terrific person. Thank you. I've been with us before. Thank you. We want to go to Dennis Bernstein. Dennis Bernstein is in San Francisco, nationally syndicated radio talk host. Uh, he'll be followed by Jim uh, Garrison and an old friend of yours, Danny, uh, Dan um, Wolf, and then uh, uh, Danny Sheehan in California. Okay, uh, but this is uh, Dennis Bernstein, as I say, is the host of the Clash Points nationally syndicated radio show. Go ahead, Dennis. Thank you, Harv. Thank you, Representative, uh, for coming and speaking with us and being with us today, and also for the extraordinary work you have done and really your father and Institute for Policy Studies. I, I was sort of studying police science at a two-year college on Long Island when I happened to hear your dad and the Institute for Policy Studies be interviewed on WBAI talking about foreign policy in a way that I couldn't even begin to imagine. So thank you for all that stuff. Um, the voter intimidation uh, and thuggery that I'm witnessing now reminds me of the kind of things I witness in reporting around Central America, where death squads hang around the courthouse uh, in trucks and cars and wait for people who might be testifying against the drug dealing military supported by the U.S. government. So this is the this is sort of what I witnessed. Now I'm starting to see scenes that really remind me of that around voting uh, areas, say in Arizona the other day, guys in a armed men with masks in a truck outside a voting structure. 
carrying their weapons? Do we think that people will feel comfortable voting? So my first question is about the thuggery and really what was your gut reaction when you saw those folks who had the legitimate right to vote in Florida get arrested for it and they didn't know what the hell even hit them? Well, yeah, on that one first, I mean, um, the, the people of Florida voted by more than 60% to reinstate voting rights to people who've done good time, got out and had every other right restored to them except the right to vote. So they overturned the GOP's uh, disenfranchisement policy. And then the legislature, the Republican legislature intervenes to say, okay, well, yes, uh, we got to stick with what the referendum said, uh, the people have restored voting rights, but you only get your right to vote back if you pay us back for the cost of your incarceration, which is clearly a poll tax in violation of the 24th Amendment. Um, and yet is still the law at this point in Florida and is now being used to arrest people who thought that they had, they got their right to vote back. I mean, this stuff is right out of the end of Reconstruction um, where policies were put in place to undercut uh, Black political power and to terrify people about voting. And that's the general strategy, of course, for the thuggery that you described there, uh, Dennis. And, you know, we're, we're going to need to fight that uh, in each state at every level in the state and then to try to get the Department of Justice to be far more pervasive and proactive a force in defending people's right to vote against intimidation and interference, which is a violation of federal law. As you and, know, uh, Ruth Strauss has raised, Dennis, I'll, I'll slip this in, uh, that, that 30,000 people are being challenged, tens of thousands of people are being challenged uh, with their right to vote by, you know, uh, almost computerized methods, especially in Georgia, as Dennis knows, and elsewhere around the country. And um, uh, go ahead, Dennis, I didn't, sorry, but that's part of your theme. Thanks, Harv. And I, I just uh, on the international front, Congressman, and again, really appreciate your work and your the, the alternative view you offer to many of us. It's very much appreciated. My concern now has to do with both sides in this war sort of accusing the other side of planning a false flag nuclear operation. It seems to me those claims going back and forth. On the one hand, you have Putin, who is desperate. On the other hand, you have the United States, the only country that has used atomic weapons against civilian populations. I'm really interested in your, it's not rhetorical, but your response. How close do you think we are? How dangerous do you think that situation is? Um, well, it's a dangerous situation because I think Putin is a madman and he is desperate and, um, you know, they're talking about using tactical nuclear weapons. Um, and, um, you know, we have, um, we have to uh, aggressively support the people of Ukraine in defending the national sovereignty of their country and their democracy against Putin and his oligarchs uh, at the same time that we keep the diplomatic channels open 
because that's how wars end. Wars end with diplomacy in the final analysis. But you know, I for one hope that Ukraine defeats Putin and drives them, you know, out of uh, their country, and then. Um, America helps to bring a diplomatic resolution, which includes Russia helping to rebuild Ukraine um, and pay for the billions of dollars of damage that they visited upon the country. Was there an Adam? Was there an Eve? Or did we evolve from what we conceived? Either way, we got what we needed when the sun shone down on the Garden of Eden.